The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Thank you very much, Steve, for that uh, introduction. Um, I am going to talk about the role of the government, the state, and the party. I think it's very important for an understanding of uh, China's economic development over the last 35 years. I think we all know the economy is roughly 25 times larger real terms than it was in 1978 when the reform began, but exactly how they got there and what the relative importance of markets and private uh, businesses versus uh, state and uh, state-driven capitalism, I think, is uh, much less well understood. And just to tell you in advance, my thesis is that China's economic success has been largely due uh, to the rise of markets, private firms, and uh, that where the state has tried to develop a model of what some people call state capitalism, what some people call the China model, it has not really been uh, very successful. There are a few uh, slides I'm going to show you that try to convey some of the uh, important information. And I'm going to start out with two slides that I think are fundamental to understanding uh, the rise of private business in China, and then I'm going to talk about some misconceptions about the Chinese economy uh, along the stock lines that uh, Steve was hinting at. But let me start out with the two fundamentals. The first fundamental is that in the old system, the State Planning Commission determined the allocation of resources. In the new system, it's profitability, retained earnings that are the driver of China's economic growth. As you can see, in the 80s, most retained earnings weren't very important. In the 90s, they became much more important. And in the 2000s, about 70% of all investment in China was financed by retained earnings. So profitability uh, became the driver of, at the firm level. If you, had, if you were more efficient and more profits, you had more retained earnings, you could reinvest them and you could grow faster. Very uh, straightforward. Even in the global financial crisis period, the last couple of years uh, shown in the diagram, when there was a huge increase in credit in China that has been widely commented on, it was still the case that roughly 55% of investments are still being financed with retained earnings. So there, it's very important to look at the financial sector, bank lending, capital markets, and other sources of finance, but always keep in mind when you're thinking about this economy that retained earnings are the biggest driver of growth. The second fundamental is that private firms, at least in the industrial sector, but also in the service sector, are much, much more efficient than state companies. See the numbers here. There was a period in the middle part of the last decade when the gap began to close, but it has widened substantially since then. And for the most recent year, we have the data that private companies have a return on, you know, return on assets is just profits divided by assets. Uh, private firms are two and a half times, almost three times more productive than state companies. So you can already see where I'm heading. Private firms, higher return on assets, and more retained earnings. They tend to reinvest these earnings, and they grow much faster. I haven't actually done a word search, but I don't think I can actually use the word privatization uh, in, the, in the entire book. The word I use frequently is displacement. Private firms are more efficient, they more retained earnings, they reinvest them, and they grow faster. So the private firms are simply overtaking the state companies. 
state companies are not shrinking away in absolute terms, but in relative terms, the weight is declining quite substantially uh, over time. So these are the two fundamentals. I want to turn next to what I think are very important misconceptions about the Chinese economy. Um, and the first, obviously, is this idea that it's a very state-dominated economy. You see some quotes here from the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, which is a pretty critical organization uh, created by Congress to look at, uh, look at China and its economy. And they think that China is a model of state capitalism. What's the date of that? I don't know. I was given a second point that's on. Okay, I'll stand close for this one. Yeah. What's the date of the? This is 2011. Um, but what's the evidence? As Steve said, the book does have data in it. I've always been of the view that you've got to look and see what's really going on in this economy. Opinions are interesting, sometimes insightful, but you always need a reality check. Here's the reality check. In the industrial sector, which is two-fifths of the Chinese economy, state firms used to produce about three-quarters of output, almost four-fifths. Uh, now they're down to a quarter of output. In manufacturing, which is the most important part of industry, uh, we don't have a long time series, but if you look at the right-hand side of the picture, uh, state companies are down to a fifth. So state companies are only producing a fifth of output in the manufacturing uh, sector. Obviously, state companies are still very important in electric power, and they're very important in upstream oil and gas, which is part of mining. Uh, so those shares of the state are much higher, but in manufacturing, the share of the state is actually fairly small, and it's come down dramatically uh, over time. So the balance of output is being produced mostly by uh, domestic private firms, somewhat by foreign-funded firms, which are mostly fully foreign and thus also should be regarded as private. So I'm going to look at a number of metrics uh, about state domination. So this is the first one, output. The second one, uh, this is more detail on the output. You can see that the state does dominate a few important sectors, uh, electric power, upstream oil and gas, uh, and so forth. But once you start, there are 44 different sectors, subsectors in the industrial classification system. And for most of them, the role of the state is very, very small. There are 24 sectors I'm not even showing you on this diagram where the average share of output being produced by state companies is less than 7%. So it's been a fairly pervasive displacement of state companies by private firms. The second metric I'm going to look at is investment. And here I'm going to focus on manufacturing, which is so important in the Chinese economy. And you can see that the state share of investment, you go back to 2005 or 4, and we have also have some data, it's about 40%. It's now down to 10%, basically. So only about a tenth of investment in manufacturing companies is undertaken by state companies. 73% is by private, and the private firms here are all indigenous. There's another uh, significant amount undertaken by foreign companies that are also private. So the state share of investment uh, has declined quite dramatically over time. It was basically 100% back in 1978. Uh, employment. Many people have this view that everybody's working for a state company in China. And in 1978, it would have been true. Uh, everybody in urban China was working for a state company. 
or a collective firm, which typically meant a local government had a substantial uh, investment slash control slash uh, influence. Today, uh, state companies are only employing about 13% of the workforce. If you add in the collectives, it's another five percentage points. So roughly about 18% of employment today in China is by state companies plus collectives, which still have some degree of state control. So we've gone from 100% state to less than a fifth in terms of employment. So the, the state as an employer is much, much less important today than it was in the early years of economic reform. So now we've gone through output, investment, employment, uh, and my last one is going to be exports. If you go back to the mid-1990s, state companies were producing about two-thirds of all of China's exports. Uh, but that's the red line. As you can see, their share has gone gradually down. Now they're only producing about 10% of China's exports. Initially, foreign firms came in and filled the vacuum, uh, increasing their share of China's exports, allowing China to continue to be a very dynamic exporting country, even though state firms were fading away. But most people have not noticed that the share of foreign firms uh, in producing exports peaked in 2005 and has gradually been coming down. The big story has been the private firms, which were not even in the export business in the 90s, began to be important, and now they're producing two-fifths of all of China's exports. And if you look at the change on a year-by-year -year basis, because the private share is going up and the foreign share is going down, uh, it turns out that the private, domestic private firms are now the dominant source of export growth on a year-by-year -year basis. So here is another example where the state uh, really has faded away as a contributor to the, to the, to the dynamic uh, export sector of the Chinese economy. So that's the summary of does the state dominate, and basically my answer is no. Their share of outputs going down, their share of investments going down, their share of employment's going down, their share of exports is going down. And in every case, their share by now is actually remarkably small. So that's the first misconception. The second misconception is that there still are a handful of very, very powerful state companies. In the words of the economists, they acknowledge, yes, there are fewer state-owned companies but they, than there used to be, but they're more powerful than ever. And again, James McGregor, who's a big critic of China, uh, focuses on 117, I think it's now 113 companies that are under the State Asset Supervision and Administration Commission. You know, these are monopolies, they have astronomical profits, they're more powerful than ever. This narrative was very strongly reinforced in the Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao period. One of the very first things the government did was to create this new commission uh, dealing with the most important state-owned companies. The National Development Reform Commission was strengthened, and then we had a series of industrial policies that seemed to favor state companies at the expense of the private sector and foreign firms. Uh, and these are just a few of the things that happened along the way. So again, the question I ask is, okay, what? You know, maybe they were trying to create national champions. Maybe there was a, a very uh, aggressive industrial policy. What was the result? Well, at first blush, it seems like it might have been quite successful. The profits of these companies that were under the State Asset Supervision Administration Commission actually grew very rapidly. If you look closely between 2003 and 2013, their profits quadrupled. So it seems like, well, maybe they're doing okay. 
But if you look at the red line, that's the share of profits being generated by these firms. It went up for a while, and then gradually it went down. And if you compare 2003 and 2013, the share of profits earned by this subset of very important firms did not increase. It actually decreased by a half a percentage point. So these firms actually did not outperform, at least as measured by profits. But the real reason that I, I think I already mentioned this, I think that state capitalism in China has failed, is that these companies were able to generate more profits mostly because they increased their assets very substantially. And as a result, their return on assets, which is a very important measure of efficiency, once you get past the first few years, it declines significantly. And more importantly, these firms earn less than the cost of capital. The red line here is my estimate of the cost of capital. And you can see for the last six years, these firms are barely earning half the cost of capital. So I think the conclusion is these firms are a big drag on China's economic growth. If the investment had gone into the private sector where returns are higher, the economy would have gone, grown much faster over this period. And certainly, uh, this evidence does not support the idea that China has been successful in creating national champions or that China has figured out some magic elixir that is uh, called the China model. Um, so that's my second uh, misconception. I think that SASIC has failed. They have not contributed to China's economic growth. In fact, quite the opposite. Oh, no, one last thing. Some people say, well, how about the rest of the state-owned companies? Maybe they were doing better. Instead of just looking at the 113, why don't we look at all, of these, all the state companies? There are thousands and thousands of, of state companies at the provincial and local level. And again, here, if you look at the right-hand side of the diagram, throughout the Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao period, and it doesn't matter whether you look at the, you know, some people think in the Hu Wen period, the state companies got the edge right off the bat when SASIC was created. Some people think the state companies got the advantage when there was a big credit boom during the global financial crisis. But it doesn't matter what period you look at. Private companies in the industrial sector growing twice as fast as state companies. So there's not much real evidence here that there's a resurgence of the broader universe of state-owned companies. Um, and this is why their share of output continues to decline, because they're growing so much slower than private companies. OK, now I'll come to myth number two, misconception number this has to do with credit. Uh, the received wisdom is that state-owned banks lend to state-owned companies. This is one of the major mechanisms of state control. Yes, there are a lot of private firms around today, but it's very hard for them to grow. They don't get access to credit. The state-owned banks lend to state-owned companies. And as the Financial Times said earlier this year, it's the dynamic entrepreneurial private companies that are typically starved of cash. Again, what's the evidence? Well, if you look at the stock of loans outstanding, it was true in 2009 that state companies had a very large share, over half. State companies, excuse me, private companies only had about a quarter of all the loans outstanding. But by the time you move up to 2012, the picture has changed. Private companies are getting more. State companies are getting less. And when you take into account that in 2009, it was already a massive amount of loans outstanding equal to about 120% of GDP. The only way you get the private share to go from 26 to 36 is if the flow numbers, that is the annual lending flow, looks very different. And that's exactly what the data show. 
If you look at 10, 11, and 12, on average, if you look at all the credit flowing to corporations, over 50% are going to private companies, and only a third is going to state-owned companies. So to me, this means that maybe China has made more progress in commercializing its banking system, and this idea that you can control the whole economy and support state firms by controlling the banking system doesn't really hold up. The private sector is much more credit worthy. This is a measure of credit worthiness of the so-called interest coverage ratio, how much you use for less, which is simply saying if you use all of your profits to pay your interest on your debt, how many times over could you pay it? You can see for the most recent years, uh, private companies are twice as credit worthy as state companies. So yes, the state controls the banking system, but the banks seem to be more commercially oriented, lending to more credit worthy companies, which means more money flowing to the private sector. So the private sector really has two things going for it, uh, and the main explanation of why they've grown so much more rapidly. Initially, it was pure efficiency, retained earnings, but in the last 10 years, it's also that they're getting better access to credit uh, from state-owned banks uh, in, in the financial sector. Now, the final um, myth is the all-pervasive role of the government and the party. And here's a nice quote from Stephen Green, who's one of the best people writing on China. China has a large and powerful government sector. It's one of the world's most powerful bureaucracies in terms of employment. Well, I wondered about that. But he, he wrote a fairly long piece. He doesn't have a single number about how many people are actually working for the state. So I started calling up people in my and Ken Lee, our state, well, how many people actually work for the government? Well, they didn't really know. I looked through all the secondary literature trying to find out uh, what the number was, and nothing. It was a very good table. You can see that I've had a very good time series on employment by the government, including the party. I have a photograph that will tell you exactly how many people are working for the party, down uh, you know, to, to the nearest thousand. And it turns out there are, there are a lot of people working for the government in China. And that's not too surprising because remember, government employment includes not only what we, we might think of narrowly as the civil service, which corresponds to uh, the Tiguan organizations, but there are also obviously millions and millions of people that are working in hospitals and schools and research organizations, which as we all know are in China are mostly run by the government. So there are about 40 million people working for the government yeah, recently. But if we follow the methodology of the International Labor Organization, and they say, well, you know, government employees are providing services, so you have to look at government employment relative to the population. So here's what China's 40 million turns into. It's about 30 government employees per thousand people. So the winner of this contest is France at 95. And the US is up there. And the U.S. number is a fiction because it doesn't count contract workers. And I read the other day, a few months ago, in the New York Times, that the Defense Department has more contract workers than they have civilian employees. They're not counted in, in this methodology. Um, they don't count for any Freddie and Freddy and other things that they claim are not quite government. So China doesn't look very different from South Africa, 
I mean, we, countries that had uh, similar levels of economic development. And so the number for number of people working for the government in China is actually quite small. And the number of people working for the party is minuscule. And I think actually the Chinese government is weak. China needs more people. China needs more government people. They need more people in education. They need more people in public health. They need more people to enforce environmental regulations. They need more people to enforce uh, food safety and other regulations. Um, so I, I don't accept this characterization of the government slash party as being one of the most powerful bureaucracies in the world in terms of uh, employment. So that's that's my fourth thing. Now, what about the future? We had the third plan uh, a year ago that laid out a very uh, ambitious agenda for economic reform, and I just want to say how I think that ties into some of the themes that are in my book. Some people call this the, the 60 points or whatever, the 60 components of this uh, communique. And to me, a couple of the most important things were the statement that the market must play a decisive role in the allocation of resources. Well, as you can tell from what I've said already, I think the market's already playing a fairly substantial role, but decisive, of course, would be even better. Uh, and the second and closely related statement was to eliminate monopolies. In one place, they said they would eliminate all but natural monopolies. Well, there are no natural monopolies in finance or telecommunications or upstream oil and gas. Those, those should be competitive sectors. Maybe you're only going to have one railroad system that how you control that. Yeah. But what does this mean? Um, this is very, very important. Uh, talk first for a minute about upstream oil and gas. China has three national oil companies. They're very inefficient. The two biggest ones, which control three quarters of the assets, have a return on assets that's about half that of ExxonMobil or Chevron or the other major international oil companies. They're highly protected in their onshore businesses. Only CNUC, which cooperates much more in the international economy and interacts much more with foreign firms, is a very efficient company. But the big problem for China is services. And one way of measuring that is to look at the role of state companies in investment in services. Remember, in the manufacturing sector, state companies are only accounting for about 10% of investment. But in the service sector, they account for about 45%. Now, certain parts of services have been highly liberalized. Everybody who goes to China knows, obviously, that you know, catering, they call it, restaurants, we call it, um, is pretty private private restaurants on every street corner, retailing, overwhelmingly private, all kinds of uh, retailers in, in every city. Uh, but when you move into modern services, uh, the role of the state's quite dominant. Uh, these are the main uh, areas of modern business services. You can see them financial intermediation, financial intermediation, that is banking, and asset management, securities, insurance, and so forth. Leasing and business services, technical services, is things like architects, law, and so forth. The state firms are very down uh, there as well. So if they really do undermine these monopolies, allow private entrance uh, into these domains, I think it could have a very uh, positive effect on China's economic growth going forward. And I say that for a couple of reasons. The data that we have show that private service providers have a return on assets that's twice as high as that of state-owned service providers. So again, there's a big differential in productivity. 
So if more resources go to the private sector, it can grow more rapidly. Um, and the second reason that this is so important is that the majority of investment in China today is being undertaken in the service sector. Uh, historically, most investment was in industry, but more recently, uh, services have uh, increased. About 55% of all investment now is in services. So essentially what I'm saying is I think there's a pretty big misallocation of resources. Half of investment, over half of investment is going into services. A very big chunk of it is being undertaken by state-owned companies that are very inefficient. And so if they really do liberalize, uh, there is a huge potential for uh, improving China's economic performance going forward. So in conclusion, I hope I'm staying within a half hour, 25 minutes. I argue in this book that China's growth largely reflects uh, the rise of market forces and private businesses. I don't see China developing a succession of model or model of state capitalism. I don't see, yes, there was no fundamental economic reform in the Hu Jintao and Jiangbao period, but I don't think there was a resurgence of uh, state firms in the uh, decade. The banking system does a much better job of allocating credit to the private sector than uh, it's given credit for. State employment and the, and the firms, the state firm employment is only about 13% of the labor force. And the last key and most important conclusion is China can promote uh, further growth by demonopolizing the upstream oil and gas industry and services. So this is very important because we all know that China is investing too much, the investment share of GDP needs to come down, and a lot of people are forecasting. Inevitably, that will mean a gigantic slowdown in economic growth. But if they undertake the reforms that they uh, advertised. More investment resources should flow to the private sector, much more efficient. So you could have a big offset. You know, your investment share might come down quite a bit, but your growth rate doesn't need to come down uh, proportionately with that. So I'm open for questions. Thank at the cover of the book on the first page, you know, the critics of the Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao period say that it was watching the states advancing the private sectors retreating, but my title is Min Jin Bo Tui. I think that's the title they're going to use for the, they're not going to put Mao in the title of the translation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to use, uh, actually they're not going to use Min Jin Bo they're going to use Bo Tui Min Jin. <laughs> First, what's your definition of the state state companies? And second, how, I saw your cost of capital. How did you, I think it was 6.8%, how did you come up with that? Well, the first question is very important. What's a state company? My analysis is not based on registration status. Uh, historically, most analysis of China's, China's economic uh, situation has been based on registration status of firms. This was fine 20, 30 years ago when we only had state enterprises that were so-called ownership by the whole people, the Chinese Uh But after 1994, when the company law came into effect and there was a possibility of creating limited liability companies, we had a huge transformation. Well, a lot of traditional state-owned companies were converted into limited liability companies. Some of them got listed on the stock exchange. Um, and also, a large number of private companies uh, 
reorganized or emerged as limited liability companies. And without knowing more about the underlying ownership, it's very difficult to know whether they're actually private or uh, state. The statistical authorities in recent years have introduced this idea of control, kombu. So a Guayo Kumbu Chia, a state-controlled enterprise, is not based on registration status, but based on control. If it's a traditional state-owned enterprise that's never been corporatized, it's state. If it's a li limited liability company in which the state is the sole majority or dominant owner, it's state-controlled. Even if it's registered as a joint venture, it may be called state control. I looked up specifically, for example, the Shanghai Automotive Industrial Corporation has two very large joint ventures, one with General Motors and one with, one with uh, Volkswagen. These are 50-50 joint ventures, so how are they going to classify these firms? They are state controlled. Uh, so this is a fairly, I think, a fairly expansive definition of state. It's not based on registration status, but it's based on who actually controls Firm. The same thing is true for private. Private, private firm. There are now 6.6 .6 million private firms in China. Uh, Six million of them are registered private companies. About 600,000 of them are limited liability companies, where private, where the, the sole majority or dominant owner is private. So it's not based on registration status. It's based on this underlying idea of control, which I think is a very uh, appropriate way from the economic perspective uh, to look at this thing. And particularly important is the fact that uh, the, the definition of state, I think, is fairly, fairly broad. Now, the second question is on the cost of capital. I use a very simple idea about the cost of capital. Most external funding for corporations comes from banks. It's many, many times more important than the cost of uh, raising capital through selling equity or bonds. So just for shorthand, I use the average bank window. Now, obviously, the great biggest firms might rely a bit on bond financing, which might be a little bit cheaper. Uh, but that's, this was a shorthand. Why do you think so many got it so differently from you? Well, I might ask the question differently. Why do you think so many got it so wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. Uh, one explanation that I have is that, you know, China's complicated. It's a big elephant. And if you're trying to do business, if you're a foreign company, for example, and you're trying to do business in the monopolized sectors, and you are butting your head against the stone wall year after year after year, you tend to quickly uh, come to the view that this is an entirely state-controlled economy, and I can't get over the Now, the second question is, that it can't get his first insurance license, and you know, it took him 20, almost 30 years. Um, Second one got a little bit faster, but it took him 10 years, uh, roughly. Uh, so if you're trying to do business in those sectors where the state still is dominant, and that's the part of the elephant that you're dealing about, and then you're not looking a little in one direction or the other, then you, uh, I think, get a misperception. And this is very, very important in Washington. The companies that have trouble doing business in China are knocking on the doors of Jack Wood and Mike Froman and Penny Pritzker complaining about how this is a state-dominated economy, they're changing how the rules are bad and they're not transparent, blah, blah, blah. The manufacturing companies don't come to Washington and 
talk about these problems for the most part because they're producing 25% of the output of manufactured goods in China, which is the highest of any major economy in the world. You know, Caterpillar has 34 plants. They are very important players in a very broad range of construction uh, equipment that they produce, you know, excavators and so forth and so on. Uh, so these companies don't come to Washington looking for assistance. So government officials also get the impression that this is entirely state-dominated. I've given presentations of this book at the State Department at USTR. They're not, they're not buying it. <laughs> because all they've been hearing for decades is about the problems American companies are having to do in business. That kind of touches on, on the, the next question, which is, are we not, are we getting the kind of our, the United States getting its economic Kind of relationship with China on a policy basis wrong? Or is it our kind of, if, if our underlying fact basis is wrong, it's very likely that our policy prescription is wrong. Is wrong. Well, um, I'm not on the inside, so I don't know for sure, but I, uh, I think this is potentially a problem. In the negotiations for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, the United States is putting a huge amount of political capital on having a whole set of rules for dealing with state-owned enterprises. And you know, part of this is being done in anticipation that you know, China may come in someday. Well, I say to them, you know that state-owned enterprises in China are only producing 10% of their exports. They don't believe it. They, you know, well, if you're gonna have a bunch of rules for, for state-owned enterprises, but they're only producing a tenth, of, a tenth of your exports, maybe it shouldn't really be quite such a high priority. Singaporeans and Malaysians and other governments in the TPP negotiations are also against what we're trying to do um, regulations on um, state-owned enterprises. So I think there's an exaggerated sense of the importance of state-owned enterprises in China and elsewhere in Asia. And we may not conclude what otherwise might be a good deal because we're holding out for a set of objectives on some of these issues that might not really buy us very much. How do you account for, even when it's not a state-owned enterprises, state interference in the economy, where the favoring of a domestic producer over a foreign producer, that to some degree is what Washington is reflecting in China? Well, there is some of that, but uh, again, I think it's exaggerated. I think the regulatory powers of the state are not as strong as many people think. If you look at the work of the OECD when they rank regulatory powers, you know, China's about as powerful as, uh, I can't remember. They're less powerful than Russia. They're even below India. Uh, less regulatory power than Europe. It's below all the other BRICs, Russia, Brazil, and India, and South Africa. So, again, in key sectors, the media, internet, uh, where the party wants to control information flow, don't look for any liberalization. I, it's not going to happen. It might be quite a lot. But, you know, producing bulldozers and excavators, the party's not so worried about that. Do you expect liberalization in the financial services sector in terms of not, not domestic liberalization, but the ability of foreign insurance companies, banks, investment banks to participate in the, on an equal basis in the Chinese uh, financial service sector? Uh, 
I'm not sure what will happen, what the new opportunities for foreign players will be. And actually, in this book, I kind of bent over backward not to talk about foreign firms so much because I, I'm a big believer in competition, opening up to private firms. When they did this in the manufacturing sector starting in the 1980s, it led to a very, very unusually large role for foreign companies. I hope the same thing is potentially possible in the service sector, including financial services. But we'll have we'll have to wait and see. I think if they buy into the idea that the private firms should have a role, then uh, any justification for excluding private firms, private foreign firms, is is weakened. And are we seeing progress? Yes. China's now licensed five private banks, the first ever completely private banks. Uh, they're being run by very aggressive companies, notably Alibaba, which is not going to do a bricks and mortar model, as you might not be surprised to hear. Uh, it's going to be very internet-based. We've already seen the kind of disruptive effect that Alibaba has had through its money market funding offers that has attracted uh, a lot of um, deposits from households. Union Pay, which has been for decades the monopolist in clearing all credit card transactions, Visa and all the other companies have been in the door for decades. Some of the things Hashim has announced last week that Union Pay is going to lose its monopoly and other providers of that service will be able to enter in. Um, so we are seeing some progress in financial services and banking uh, and uh, payments. Uh, Clearing of uh, car transactions. I, I promise to open the floor to questions, so let me uh, start over here and then work right back. Okay, so I love that you do a very data driven analysis. I think that's great to cut through a lot of the noise at some point. One thing that I think a lot of people might say, not something I would say, is that a lot of the data that comes out of China is either noisy, inaccurate, or willfully manipulated. What do you have to say about the quality of data coming out of China? Well, I, um, I, think, I think that the quality of data coming out of China is generally very high. And if you think the data are manipulated, then you have to ask the question, that these data are all coming out of the government. What is the incentive of the government to show us that on every metric available, private firms are outperforming state firms? Why, why would they want to tweak things to generate that result? I can't think of an explanation. You would have thought maybe it would, it would run the other way. Um, so I think, um, I think the data are fairly robust, and I, I don't think for the kinds of data that I'm using that um, distortion or outright misrepresentation of, of the underlying reality is a problem. And obviously, there's some, some data in China are better than others, some are weak, some are better. Um, I'm not using the data to kind of you know, to make a point estimate about you know, some regression equation that relies on a lot of data. You know, I'm just looking at big numbers, like return on assets of private firms being 13% and state firms being 4.9. But my argument doesn't matter. If the data are a little bit off and it's six versus 11, the argument, I think, is still valid that private firms are more efficient. So um, all the data show over time private firms are being more efficient. And I think that's, um, I think that's borne out by the data. I mean, you'd have to have a massive manipulation to 
make everything return consistently. We have the data and we turn on process and we see how fast terms are growing and all kind of basically hangs, hangs together. And I'm not looking, I'm not using GDP data or some of the other some of the other things that actually are technically very hard to measure might have shortcomings, uh, might be subject to some smoothing out. Um, and I'm not using anything complicated. If you think of this uh, slide on, on return on assets of, um, of the SASIC companies, all these data come straight out of the SASIC yearbook. They have, I didn't know this until a few years ago, they have uh, an annual yearbook that runs five to 600 pages. They have a chapter on assets, they have a chapter on profits. And I use this very sophisticated methodology. <laughs> to calculate the return on assets. Again, maybe maybe the data aren't perfect, but um, the gap between the cost of capital and the return on assets is, is fairly enormous. Hello, I teach international business. Oh, I'm, my name is Larry Bridwell, and I teach uh, international business in the MBA program at Case University. I have a lot of students from China. And I uh, attended an academic conference uh, a few weeks ago, and I was surprised at the amount of what I would call China bashing. And I think one of the reasons this is going on is there's this belief that the hardliners are now running the government and the reformers have been shoved aside. So based on uh, your, your 30 years of involvement with China, I would be very interested in what you forecast for the future of China in terms of this hardliner reformers. So that's my macro question. I have a, a little micro question, which is in your data you had foreign and private, and one of the huge investors is Foxconn, which is Taiwan, or they classify and they do all the Apple products. Are they considered to be private because they're from Taiwan, or are they foreign? Uh, on, on the investment in manufacturing, th these data are based on the concept of control that I mentioned before. So, uh, but these are domestic private companies on the 73%. In addition to that, there's another seven or eight percentage points of investment undertaken by foreign funded companies. So my definition of private here, here is indigenous private in this particular dollar. Include Taiwan? No. Now on your broader, more important question, um, are, you know, are the hardliners in control? Well, I think certainly Xi Jinping is making a big effort to strengthen the role of the party to put uh, more pressure against uh, opponents uh, on the political side to control the internet even more stronger than ever, and so forth. I think on the economic side, I don't see that. In fact, I think it's quite the opposite. Uh, I think the reformers are having a resurgence. I think their influence is fairly moderate. I don't know who about a decade. And I think they're having a recovery. If you look at all the appointments and the, and the leading groups that have been created uh, since the third plenum, that we see the ascendancy of people like you know, Maji Wei and the Ministry of Finance, uh, Fang Xinghai coming back from Shanghai to work directly with Liu Club. And everywhere you look, I think you see uh, 
reformers, uh, strong reformers. You know, there was a rumor the other day that Joe Chantuan was going to retire and be pushed out, but his successor supposedly was Washu Ching. Washu Ching is also a liberal, cut from the same cloth. So I think she is surrounding herself by people who have a very good grasp of the economic challenges uh, China faces. Yes, when you go to China, some of them are frustrated, particularly if you talk to people in the research institutes and the academics. They, they, they think things are going too slowly, uh, but I think directionally they're moving in uh, an appropriate direction. And I think that very, very good people are leading, leading the charge on this. And I would say one final thing, and that is I think Xi Jinping is very committed to this set of reforms. He's in a very strong political position. Other people around in the room who can tell you more accurately than I whether it's correct to say he's the strongest leader since Deng Xiaoping, but he certainly has consolidated his power <coughs> rapidly. He certainly does not believe that the economic model inherent for Kuala Lumpur is going to be viable for another eight years. He's very strong incentive to use his political capital to push against his business interests and uh, move the reform agenda forward. Yes, I'm Sarah Miles Williams, and I'm Director of Communications at the East-West Institute. My question is about, um, it's really sort of twofold, the influence of the government in all aspects of Chinese life, and including in the private sector. So I've read a number of things that would indicate that even private businesses have those sort of party minders. Um, and so I'm wondering if some of the mythology doesn't perhaps relate to that, because foreign companies run up against the government um, pretty much everywhere and they're attempting to do business. So that's sort of part A. Part B is, do these party minders have any influence over control? So in the West, we think of control as voting shares on the board. So are, are these party people in any way interfering in the private sector, which might make it somehow more state influenced? Well, um, let, let me say, I think it's fairly obvious. I'm not basing my uh, analysis on kind of micro-level studies going out there doing firms and so forth and so on, but uh, I can tell you what I think. I don't believe the party has much control in these private enterprises. And if they do, let's say their degree of control is similar to the degree of control they have in the, in the remaining big state companies. Why do these private firms behave so much differently? Why do they generate? return on assets is twice as high. Uh, so my conclusion is, yeah, everybody has a party committee, of course, uh, that goes without saying. But are they telling these entrepreneurs how to run their business? Someone sitting next to Jack Ma and telling him we should do this and this and this and that, if you don't, then you're going to be in trouble with the party? I, I can't see it, uh, because the performance of these private firms is so superior. So, I guess the question I would pose back to those people who believe that the parties somehow behind the scenes everywhere, why do they have such a pernicious influence on the state-owned companies and a positive influence on private companies? I, I can't think of an explanation. So I come to the conclusion that it's quite likely that in most private companies, the role of the party is quite small. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't government regulations in all market economies that are government seems to be uh, complying with, but that's a characteristic of the American economy. We have regulations to, for public health and safety and uh, uh, wages and 
working conditions, uh, you know, OSHA, some people think OSHA is a big bad bureaucracy in the United States. Uh, so, uh, no, so the government, I'm not saying the government is, I, I've already said, I think there's a very important role for the government. I think actually the Chinese government is too small to carry out its most important functions, which are the provision of public goods, not the micromanagement of companies. Uh, thank you, Ms. Laurie. Uh, my name is Yang Yongqi. I'm a senior consultant at uh, Pyro Energy. Um, I wanna just want to ask you about the uh, one of the points you summarized in the, the banking system. is better serving the private sector these days, which means they're providing more loans or lending you know, to those uh, to these uh, private players. Um, my personal experience, you know, I was doing developing solar project in the Gobi Desert in the last few years. And my feeling is, and also from experience with my family members working in the, in the bank. And the, the issue is the bank, maybe in general, in the, in the, you know, in the macro level, they're probably providing more loan, you know, in the, in the, for, for private sectors, but most of the time the private Enterprise still, you know, struggling. Um, at least, you know, for I was when I was developing a project. If we partner with private companies, the cost of the the loan we borrow from the bank, as you said, is about six point eight. But then, if you are state-owned company, you get a twenty percent discount on that. And on top of that. Every year around this time, it's the busiest time for the for the bank because they're receiving all the requests for borrow. You know, people want to borrow money. The majority part either goes to the state-owned companies or the large, maybe you know those well-known public-listed private companies. And so the the, the thing that I want to talk about, I want to point out is. Have you have you have you looked at it? You know what recently people were talking about those underground financial institutions, and what's your take on that? Right. Well, you, you've raised several important points, and let me say, uh, I think the situation has improved pretty dramatically over the last two or three decades in terms of private sector and access to credit. But I would agree with what I take to be premise of your question is that the private sector is still relatively underserved. Uh, I think the best estimate is that the private sector is producing somewhere between two-thirds and maybe as much as three-quarters of GDP, but they're only getting about 52% you know, of the loans coming from the banking system. State companies are only producing you know, a quarter or maybe a third of GDP, but they're getting 36% uh, of the credit. So there is a case that the private sector is still relatively underserved. Then the question becomes, why is the private sector underserved? And I think that in certain respects, China is no different from any other market economy. And that is, if you are, if you are a startup company with no collateral and no cash flow, but a brilliant business plan, if you walk into your local bank and ask for a big loan, they're going to turn you away. So 
startup companies in China, like everywhere else, have to rely on family and friends and informal finance, maybe some of the underground finance of the type you mentioned, like in Tianjin, are charging still 20% uh, interest rates. So uh, there are many private firms at the beginning who don't, uh, don't get access to credit, but I'm not sure the situation in China is very different from, from what it would be in, in, say, the United States or any other advanced industrial uh, economy. So, <clears throat> but there is some credit still going, uh, despite that, there's a lot of credit going even to the Gutsi Go Chapu. If you look at the, the data, it, you know, it's in the trillions of RMB, so it's not zero. But when you consider that they employ 56 million people, then the amount of credit outstanding to that group of firms is, is fairly small relative to the number of people they employ. So what does that mean? It means that a lot of private companies are concentrated in the service sector where the capital requirements are small uh, compared to the manufacturing sector where the capital requirements for entry typically are, are more of a hurdle. Nick, your analysis suggests that uh, Xi Jinping and the company can basically declare victory in terms of what they've outlined for the third planet. My question is, um, and you said that you didn't think that the market economy, the market was decisive yet. What point does the data that drives your analysis tell you that the market is uh, decisive? Well, uh, to me, what I would be looking for is first uh, demonopolization so that private firms could enter into businesses, uh, domains that have been uh, restricted to state companies, particularly the ones that I mentioned. Uh, and then, you know, to see how they expanded and you know, how much competition they're bringing into the, to the industry. And also, there's still a few prices that the government controls. They have not deregulated uh, deposit rates in the banking system. Uh, the exchange rate is not fully market determined. There's less government intervention in the past, but there's still some. So there are a few key prices where it need to be completely liberalized before you can have a market play a really decisive role everywhere. And then you need to get rid of these sort of barriers, uh, barriers to entry. How can you, I, to me, you can't say markets are playing a decisive role in the allocation of resources if private firms can't go into upstream oil and gas, they can't go into financial services, they can't go into telecommunications, uh, and some of the other modern business services. So, but that was also in the third plan of document. Lots of repeating of the phrase a level playing field, fair competition. It, was, it, had, it had a very strong market flavor. So we'll have to wait and see how fast they can actually hit Hi, uh, thanks, Mr. Marty, uh, for the wonderful presentation. My name is Akam Kwang Zhang with Edelman. Can you tell us more about the Alibaba, the, the cooperation between Alibaba and the government? Why did the Chinese government decided to open up to Alibaba? And what kind of cooperation that they have for to to reform this financial industry and uh, what could the uh, government get out of it and why Alibaba? What did they do differently? Um, if you think about the Wuying, um, the formerly sixth richest woman in China, and he was arrested and charged with uh, um, illegal fundraising um, and got a life sentence. What? What are the differences between them, and why did the 
Yeah. Basically, the Chinese government decided to open up their, to reform their uh, Chinese financial industry. Thank you. Well, I think um, I think Alibaba is a very interesting case. It is a very entrepreneurial firm that has been largely independent of the government, and basically what they were originally engaged in is what you know economists might call regulatory arbitrage. I mean, they started up a money market fund. There were no regulations on money market funds, so they started paying interest rates that were substantially higher uh, than banks were allowed to pay, and within you know, within a year they attracted you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions. R&D and deposits, and had begun to have a fairly disruptive uh, effect on the banking system. Now, to me, the very interesting thing is that it's not that they did this with the cooperation of the government, but the government didn't try to shut them down. Uh, basically, I think people in the, fan the regulators in the financial industry want more competition. They want eventually to get rid of the deposit ceilings that banks and charge, and so they just allowed this to uh, to go on. They, they've thrown a little bit of sand in the gears, but not very much. So uh, I think this was purely entrepreneurial on the part of Alibaba. Uh, I think it has the potential for being transformed in the financial sector. Uh, so I, I wouldn't use the word cooperation with the government. I think the government has uh, been willing to see this move ahead, because at least the parts of the government that do the regulation, they want to move in this direction. So this is a way of what you might call backdoor deposit regularization. The same thing with wealth management products you know, that some of the banks are issuing. So they're learning how to operate in a more flexible interest rate environment without having a formal end of controlling deposit rates. So you know it's like the kind of two-track systems that China has used over the over the years, you know, going back to the 80s, particularly prices. Now, the woman that you mentioned, I'm not, I don't know the details of her case, but I think her fundraising was more of a pyramid scheme that had lots of risk, and so and was illegal, and so she was taken down. Well, maybe she was in trouble politically for other reasons, but she wasn't running a kind of transparent, open uh, model like the <laughs> I have to apologize to my, the many members and friends who still have questions, but we have run out of time. The book, Markets Over Now, is available outside, and the author, in fact, inside, in the back of the room, and the author is available to personally sign the purchase copies. But thank you so much for it. It was a very, very enlightening.